Hi, I'm Jonathan. This is uh, The Service Design Show, and this is episode 104. Hi, I'm Mark, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Service Design Show podcast. My goal with this show is to empower you with the most effective skills and strategies so you can design services that win the hearts of people and business. The guest in this episode is Jonathan Kalinowski. And as you'll notice throughout this conversation, Jonathan is all about facilitating desired outcomes. Now, what does that mean? That means keeping an eye on the ball, making sure that we constantly are aware of the impact that we want to create on business and on people. Because in a lot of cases, service design projects never make it till that final stage, till that implementation stage, the stage where our ideas, our research, our prototypes can actually make a tangible impact. And that's what we want. If we fail to do that, fail to do that too often, we risk losing our entire credibility. So we need to get our projects to that final stage. And Jonathan is going to share how outcome-driven innovation has helped him. And who knows, it might help you as well. I really hope you'll enjoy this chat with Jonathan as much as I did. I learned so many new things. Um, if you want to continue this conversation, make sure you look me up on LinkedIn and leave a message there that you're listening to this episode. I'd love to connect with you. And if you're new to the podcast and are interested in service design and how to actually explain it in a way that people understand, make sure you check out the free training that I've got for you, which you can find at servicedesignshow.com slash free course. And again, that's a free training on how to explain service design in plain English. Now, having said that, it's time to jump into the chat with Jonathan Kalinowski about outcome-driven innovation. Let's go. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hi, Mark. Good to see you in this new... It's good to see you too. ...service design show format. This will be the, the second episode we're doing uh, this. So it's still a prototype, and I'm really excited that you were courageous enough to, to, uh, <laughs> to, ex to do this experiment with me. Well, you know, I've subjected a lot of people to guinea pig status in my prototyping career. So I, you know, it's, it was just a matter of time that it came payback back around time. to me. It's payback mm -hmm. time. Jonathan, for the people who don't know who you are, could you give a brief introduction? Sure. So my name is Jonathan Kalinowski. I currently work as the Director of Innovation and Transformation at MetLife. I uh, spent the most of my career in Chicago, Illinois, working for a service design consultancy called Fjord. And then I transitioned over to work in-house as a service designer and, um, uh, and to build an innovation center of excellence at a credit union. And, uh, and now I'm in Raleigh. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Beautiful mm -hmm. place. Jonathan, I didn't prepare you for this one because uh, it wasn't, uh, you weren't <laughs> supposed to be prepared, but we're going to do a 60 second rapid fire question uh, uh, round. So are you ready? Love it. You have no option. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to cheat. Uh, time starts right now. What is always in your fridge? Raw milk. Okay. Uh, which books are you reading? I'm reading a book called Nourishing... Actually, I'm reading like seven books. Uh, Nourishing Traditions, uh, books by Western Price about nutrition and physical degeneration. I'm reading a new Jobs to be Done book by Jim Callback. Uh, reading Quality Function Deployment by um, uh, by a couple of Japanese uh, 
Uh, we have 60 seconds. Next question. What, is your, uh, what superpower would you like to have? <laughs> uh, I would like to fly. Fly. Uh, what did you want to become when you were a kid? Oh, this is embarrassing. I wanted to be a singer, a singer-songwriter. We want to, at the end of the episode, who knows? <laughs> uh, okay, final question in this round. When did you first hear about service design? Uh, back in 2000 and maybe 10, uh, 2011, when I uh, started my journey into service design uh, at Savannah College of Art and Design. Well known. We've had some people from... Uh, Scat here on the show. Yeah. All right. Um, Jonathan, awesome. Thank you for, for doing this round already. Um, we're going to jump into your journey, uh, which will be really interesting. I think a lot of people uh, will recognize this, especially people who are listening and viewing and who are in this community. So let's start your journey by the destination. Where are you heading to? Like, what is your final dream desired outcome where's the opportunity that we're heading to with you i love the fact that you're using the word desired outcome because i think that's 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 the future i want to get to is um <clears throat> a world in which service designers are facilitating desired outcomes for organizations uh, and i don't think that this happens in three weeks six week 12 week intervals i think this happens in three months six month multi-year uh, engagements so uh, and and that's individuals like you and myself uh, integrating innovation methodologies and practices from eras in the past with what we've learned today, with the new innovative technologies and analytics platforms and ways of listening to customer experiences. And we are working not as producers of things like journey maps and service blueprints and um and different kinds of uh, artifacts, but we are actually facilitating outcomes. Mm. So we help draw up the outcome uh, with the organizers of the business and also with the customer set, uh, whoever they might be. With the, you know, If it's a B2B, obviously it's gonna be another business. If it's a BSC client, it's gonna be your customers. But what we're doing as service designers is facilitating these desired outcomes. And the desired outcomes, this is gonna be a theme throughout everything that I say. The desired outcomes, I think, need to be more rigorous uh, we need to rely on the amazing work that has been done in the past in terms of innovation methodology, measurement um, of experience, measurement of, uh, of, of, of various elements of any sort of pr product life cycle, uh, measurement of business, and integrating that with the new, um, or relatively new, I would say 10 or 15 years old now, maybe even 20 years old, uh, practices of service design. Mm -hmm. So... Uh if I had to summarize what you just said, it's more uh, actually being accountable for delivering outcomes rather than, rather than I don't know what, uh, but at least being accountable for outcomes. Yes. So, yeah. And I think, you know, one observation I've made is in the past when I was consulting was that there were a lot of organizations were hiring consulting partners like the one I used to work for. Um, to say that they were working on service design. It was almost as a badge uh, of, of honor, uh, something that the product manager could say to their boss saying, we're doing the latest and greatest in service design. And so the outcome didn't necessarily matter. Mm. It was about the, the, the fact, and this is years ago, but um, 
it was the fact that the organization was practicing service design. Sure. Yep. And now I think it's really about outcomes and accountability, just like you said. Well, yeah, the outcome in that case was that the manager could check something off and write, and where that's not the outcome that gets us fired up, that we wake up every morning and get out of bed. That's We, we want to create different outcomes. Could you take us back to the moment where you actually really started to care about this? When did you... Yeah, when did you start to care about desired outcomes? This was, let's see, probably back in 2014. So um, I was working on an engagement with a really knowledge knowledgeable client, um, Fortune 50 Bank. And the, the product manager on this particular engagement was, he knew everything about we were, we were developing this um, innovative B2B payment platform so businesses could pay each other and receive the funds, right? And, um, and we, all, we always started at the consultancy. We always started sort of at, uh, from a state of uh, naivete or, or ignorance, always trying to approach the problem with, uh, with a student's mindset. Um, and... <laughs> We ended up ignoring a lot of uh, what the product manager uh, was telling us. He was telling us certain things that he knew about his product. And we thought, okay, okay, um, we'll grab that, we'll capture it, we'll document everything that you're telling us. Um, but nevertheless, we still need to go out to talk to the customers and we need to learn from them um, what they need. And so we, we, we approached the problem from a, a standpoint of, uh, not necessarily trusting our our um, our clients in terms of how deep they understood their their customer, and that was a mistake. Um, a mistake I think probably most of us have have made is that we ignore what some of our clients are saying or our customers are saying uh, for the sake of doing or going through the service design process. I think one thing that uh, caused me to become a little bit more concerned with facilitating desired outcomes and and achieving what the client wants is is really just this this humility that was a result of that engagement um, we realized once we you know we we conducted this amazing research uh, project and we spoke to 50 clients and we we traveled to New York and to various parts of the, you know the country uh, to talk to their customers and we, when we came back to our our clients and presented the outcome of our research he said he didn't learn anything new. And that was humiliating um, in such a good way, though. I don't think I could have learned what I learned out of that engagement had it not been so humiliating. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, yeah. I guess those are the most, some of the most powerful experiences. Uh, yeah, and as long as you uh, take learnings out of them, then it's, it's a valued experience. Um, so that experience of being... Um, having your eyes opened and uh, understanding that you need to focus more on, on outcomes and listening. If you had to uh, describe like, what, what is the price that we pay if we uh, ignore this or, yeah. Well, you mentioned the word already, accountability. Um, I might phrase it slightly differently, credibility. I think that service design is in this interesting um, point in its maturity right now. So 
service design was born in consulting. And consulting is very ex- expensive. And, um, and there's, there's an accountability problem. So in several of my past engagements as I was consulting, even now as you know, my wife and I were starting to build a service design slash interior design consultancy, um, we, we are very concerned with accountability. Um, once the engagement ends after 12 or 16 or 20 weeks or, or whatever it is, uh, the product manager or the client or the individual who's inheriting our work needs to really make sure that it's um, going to be implemented. And that's where I, I saw in my consulting career, I saw a lot of projects falling off. I was fortunate enough that about 75% of my projects were actually implemented. And that was because we had smart people um, building the contracts, uh, the engagement contracts uh, with the clients that I was working on. So I was very fortunate to be working with some pretty amazing people. But my colleagues who you know, I was working side by side with, we'd talk daily at the lunch table about how none of their projects were being implemented. And that was because there was no accountability and there was no follow through because the engagement had to end. Otherwise, the organization would bleed money. Um, and so it's really important to, to, to focus on credibility um, right now within this you know, service design kind of merging mm. with business design, merging with, it, it's not even really design anymore. It's really, it's really about building a business and facilitating these desired outcomes. Um, and I think it's about doing that collaboratively and not just with designers. Yeah. Yeah. So if we, if we ignore this too long and we uh, ignore the accountability, we will lose our credibility. And then basically we're uh, throwing something away, which has a lot of potential to do good for the world, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, I think that there is also a bit of humility that comes um, uh, into play as well. Like I said, you know, I learned humility. I was a big, you know, big tough consultant uh, in service design, and this was, you know, at one of the foremost service design consultancies in the world. And you know, I had this puffed up chest, and I think. Um, humility, bringing humility into any sort of engagement is uh, one of the quickest ways to build credibility um, because you're always listening. You're mm. always taking mm. in. You're always acknowledging and you're, you're learning from uh, your environment. You're not just applying a template to any project that you're working on. What, what, what do you feel is the biggest gap between where we want to be versus where we are now? Why aren't... Why aren't we there yet? What is holding us back? Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, there's a little bit of um, there's a gap between what we as service designers know about our past and our heritage. Um, it's almost like you know, in in ancient Greek times, Roman times, you see these amazing sculptures, these amazing paintings with perfect perspective. Uh, just a deep understanding of the human body, right? Uh, and 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 it looks lifelike. And then you go through this weird period of time from about you know 700 up until about 1400, uh, where it's like humanity forgot everything that it had learned in the previous uh, centuries. Uh, we start seeing medieval art that doesn't make use of perspective very well. It's this this weird time where a lot of the art and sculpture is, is more grotesque and cartoonish than it is lifelike. 
I suppose, you know, it serves its purpose from a storytelling perspective. But then emerging out of that and going into the Renaissance, we had this, well, it's called the Renaissance because it was uncovering everything that we had learned, you know, in, in, in ancient times. And I think we as a service design community need to look back 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years uh, and learn from our heritage. Where do we come from? Where does the idea of innovation and uh, quality management and efficiency and uh, you know product lifecycle management and quality function deployments, where do all of these things, Lean Six Sigma, where do all of these things fit in to our repertoire? Mm. And I think that we as service designers need to do a better job of understanding these things because, I mean, I work as, as, as a director right now at MetLife and there are some people who've been there for 40 years. And so I'm rubbing shoulders with them and I need a common language and a way to express myself in a way that they understand hmm. so that I'm not rejected by MetLife's immune system, right? And so I think as service designers, we need to be uh, willing and able to intelligently discuss points of view, especially because, you know, things like Lean Six Sigma or um, QFD or House of Quality, any of these things, they can be kind of looked down upon because they're from yesteryear, they're old hat. They're no longer uh, the new wisdom. Um, and there is a lot of wisdom. I was just reviewing some of the stuff on QFD and uh, quality function deployment. And it's all about this, this, this wonderful perspective of how do we make sure that qualitative customer needs make their way into the um, requirement set of any sort of product or service development. And I'm, I'm using product as, mm-hmm. a, as, as, a, as, as kind of a standard for service. I know there's a whole controversy around that, but I don't want to get there. <laughs> It's it's um, the, the word that came to my mind is naive. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, if I'm going to insult uh, people, but maybe. Um, uh, do you feel that as a as a field where, uh, in that sense, a bit naive? Maybe naive isn't the word I would use. Um, I would I <laughs> might even I use a stronger it. word, uh, ignorant. And it's not in, in a sense of like uh, willful ignorance. I think it's just a matter of, you know, design has a heritage, or at least the way I learned about it was through industrial design. So I wanted to be an architect, and then I I found industrial design, fell in love with it, and but it wasn't strategic enough for many you know, for many reasons. Um, And then I found service design. And so service design was created by leveraging a lot of the tools and methodologies that were developed in industrial design and applying them to kind of service uh, contexts, right? Um, But I think that even prior to that, we had business contexts. For example, you had the Japanese economic miracle after World War II, where you had this, this, these stages of recovery that were facilitated by government intervention that were enabling the, the Japanese economy to really, you know, Japan, made, made in Japan was not a good thing prior to World War II. It was, you did not want to have anything made in Japan. It was considered bad quality. And then post, it's, it's kind of the silver lining because Hiroshima and Nagasaki were significant events in history and it's just untold pain. But one of the silver uh, linings of that was that the economy could rebuild itself in a way that it wanted to. And so Japan became the center of quality, high quality, and efficiency and low cost. So 
it's funny that today we hear that we hear things like you can't have low cost and high quality at the same time. Well, that's not true. I would actually argue that uh, high quality lowers your cost over time. And so, uh, and and Japan has been a wonderful example of of all of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm sure on your on your journey towards uh, facilitating desired outcomes. Um, You've experienced some challenges. Um, I'm curious if, if are there any stories that come to your mind when you think about the <laughs> yeah the roadblocks challenges that you had to yes. overcome? Yes, yes. Uh, when I was working at the the credit union, um, before me, before my getting hired there, there was no design, there was no innovation practice, there was no centralized place for service design to occur. And so I joined the organization and a lot of the organization, and we were small, you know, at the time that I joined, we were 200 uh, people, 250 people. Um, so the entire organization was looking at my uh, department, the Service Design Center of Excellence department uh, for results. And nobody, I mean, people thought that designers were just people, you know, mm -hmm. who had the propeller hats on <laughs> and, and wore funky colors and jeans and had man buns. And which is fine, um, but that's not what I—that's not the reputation I wanted to build at the organization. So, um, like I said, rigor um, became a, an, a very important part of our practice. And there was, you know, there there was one individual in particular, my boss's boss, who was a just a no nonsense person. You couldn't sit down with him and have a conversation about philosophical topics because he was so practical. He wanted to know, okay, so what does this all mean? If it's philosophy for the sake of philosophy's sake, then there's no reason to be talking about it. Let's go do something. His, uh, his favorite catchphrase was uh, get stuff done, but he used an expletive <laughs> instead of stuff. Um, and so he would always look at me in the hallways and say, get stuff done, get stuff done. And he even had a mug that sometimes you would just point at um, that had <laughs> that phrase on there. But it was, it became important. It, uh, we would, on, on every single call and every single meeting, we would imagine that our friend, our boss's boss was in the room and he was saying, get stuff done. So we would sit down and we'd be brainstorming and we'd be having these philosophical discussions about customer needs and the things that we were finding out in the field, um, you know, about how people were, you know, buying and saving and, and managing their, their cash and what role did a credit union have to play in these things. Um, and uh, time and time again, I can't tell you how, how important it was. We just needed to go to the whiteboard and draw things out and actually show context to what the business problem was so um, long story short we ended up selling you know a bundle probably about 12 projects it was one big program called the customer experience improvement program we called them members so it was member experience improvement program um, and we ended up selling 12 projects to the board by uh, by inviting our boss's boss imaginary our imagination uh, to every single meeting sketching out what is the customer context look like and then also thinking about okay let's say an individual has to go out to staples in order to fax or scan something um what does that look what kind of an impact does that look like in their daily lives and then what kind of an impact does that look like on a business side and so merging the two perspectives so we would have things like storyboards up on the wall but we would have rolled you know old school tools like rolled throughput yields it's a hard word to say. <laughs> um, 
but it, 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 we were we were essentially showing analytics for how successful our our current customer experiences were by mapping those uh, milestone analytics to different parts of the customer journey, you know, using storyboards and uh, and service blueprints. And um, you know, six months later, we were able to share the the output of our work with our boss's boss, and he w- he just sat back and he said, "Thank you. This is wonderful. I see." the impact that you're having to the customer experience. I see that you're actually getting stuff done. And I also see the impact that you're having from a business standpoint, uh, how you're driving the needle and uh, how we're able to measure customer experience. That's that's notoriously right. difficult. Yeah. It's, it feels a little bit like um, you have to start at the end, uh, both uh, in terms of the customer and uh, mm-hmm. what they want, as well as what the business needs and what the business wants. So I, I feel that a lot of service designers, of people in our, our field, are aware of that and have that in the back of their mind. Uh, but what I'm feeling from your story is that it's not enough to have it in the back of your mind. It should be top of mind and it should always be uh, uh, in your focus in every story that you share and every hallway conversation because we might have internalized it. We, we might know what the... North Star is, but it can be very hard for other people to to see like what we're doing, how it contributes to the mm-hmm. end goal. It's is I'm trying to, yeah. to recap what you just said, basically. <laughs> Thank you. I uh, know I appreciate the summary, and I think that you're absolutely right. But you know, as as service designers, we are always internal consultants, even within a consultant. Uh, 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 consultancy. We are always internal consultants, which means that we have to view every interaction that we have, you know, with both our colleagues, our clients, or even individuals within different departments, if you're in-house, as our customers. And if we do that, you know, we're always filtering what we're hearing from our customer group uh, in terms of what are their requirements, what are their needs, what are their um, social, emotional, functional jobs that they're trying to accomplish. What are their desired outcomes? You know, at MetLife, I a lot of my job is about building relationships um, across the organization. We're huge. You know, we're we're absolutely a, a massive uh, global organization, and developing these relationships actually helps um, uh, helps my team understand what are the what are the customer needs from this group standpoint and what are the actual customer needs and what's the delta between them so that we can function as internal consultants a mm. little bit um, uh, more efficiently. Yeah, uh, I've said it uh, often, but it can be said often enough. Like we we uh, preach a lot of empathy for uh, customers, patients, students, uh, the, end, the end users. But we're often lacking a lot of empathy for the people we were working with. Um, and well said. Yeah, and, and that's that's. I think that's shifting, uh, luckily. But um, yeah, let's let's keep repeating that. Jonathan, I know also that um, your you have a lot of ideas about uh, the application of jobs to be done. Let's drop the word mm-hmm. here. Um, can you share some of the your thoughts and how this integrates to the journey you're on. Yeah. So um, the story that I told you earlier about me being humiliated by my client, um, just his 
in-depth understanding of customer needs uh, signaled to me that I need to learn some more. Even after completing a master's program in service design, you're, you're never done learning. And so I began, um, uh, I embarked upon this journey of, of learning. How do I ensure that the research I'm doing yields innovative results? You know, what, as we were preparing, I, I was thinking about the real question that we're asking here. And it's, what if successful innovation was actually a predictable process? And the important word here is successful innovation because anybody can innovate. You can, you know, crumple up a piece of paper and technically that's an innovation, but it's not very useful um, to any individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as an organization, you want to be always focusing on what, what's the, how do, how do we as an organization define success? Uh, how do we define innovation? And then how do we define that process so that we can repeat that process over and over and over again? Obviously, there would be unique elements across every single one of the projects. Um, but, you know, as a result of the, the, the humiliation, I embarked upon a, a journey of learning a little bit more about jobs to be done. And like I said, Lean Six Sigma, quality function deployments, house of quality, all of these, you know, bygone era um, uh, sort of management, innovation management uh, methodologies. Jobs to be done stood out among all of them because uh, it, it's probably the closest one to what service designers will understand. There's a period of time where <clears throat> the design team is conducting research um, and it's qualitative research, but it's actually pretty constrained qualitative research. When we go out into the field, um, you have a pretty good understanding of what it is that the customer is trying to accomplish. Or if you don't have a good understanding of that, uh, and here I'm defining what it is that the customer is trying to accomplish is the job, right? The job that they're trying to get done. So if you don't have a good understanding of that, you need to talk to your customers to get a good understanding of that. But then you need to map it out. And the reason I say it's pretty constrained is because um, the methodology that I've subscribed to has more or less an eight-step process from defining the job to locating the requirements for the job to you know, gathering all of those things, executing and so on and so forth, and then finishing the job. How do you know when you're actually done um, a, and you've accomplished the, the, the desired outcome? And you know, I remember one time uh, we were sitting down with some customers and um, my colleague and I at the credit union, we were... We were just listening for, for uh, what desired outcomes people were trying to accomplish. They were, they were saying things like, I wish things would go on sale after I bought them. And we would say, oh, okay. So minimize the likelihood that something goes on sale or the price changes after I purchase something, right? And so we would use this really constrained, rigorous way of phrasing the customer need, minimize the likelihood or minimize the time it takes to fill in the blank. Uh, and then what we would do is we would take those statements and we wouldn't qualify them. We would send them back to our uh, market segment, you know, the, the, the customer group that we were investigating. And we would ask them for every single one of these, which on our first project was about 150 different customer need statements, how important versus how satisfied are you with the current uh, set of offerings? So how important is it for you to minimize the likelihood that something 
goes on sale after you purchase it. And then how satisfied are you with the current offerings that are out there uh, that enable you to you know, not buy something at a, at a higher price? And so we've, we've received uh, scores you know, on a scale of 1 through 10 for all 150 of our desired outcome statements. And we were able to plot them on a 2 by 2 matrix and show with rigor, this is exactly what the customer is looking for. This is what they say they're not satisfied with. This is what they say is extremely important to them. And we were able to qualify all of our need statements. And um, you know, the output of that is a set of five to 10 really high quality, um, differentiating, innovative uh, requirements, almost like the boundaries. Designers, we need, we need boundaries. If you just say, go design me the next, you know, the future of cardboard or something like that, we need constraints. That's a little too, uh, too broad. And so the output of the desired outcome kind of uh, uh, exercise with our customers is this really constrained area within which we can work and ideate and come up with really innovative solutions. Um, and then what we're able to do is, you know, take three of those desired outcomes and say, okay, what if we came up with a service offering that addresses these three, uh, these three needs that have been, you know, that are very important, but very low in satisfaction. Um, and then can we create a new product around that and, and, and make it, you know, surround it with a service, uh, the delivery system? Can we, what, what kind of interesting things can we do? And then we can deploy it via uh, a prototype and then we can take that prototype and, uh, and test it out with different kind of market segments. And by the way, I think that there's an important thing here. You might have re- recognized that I haven't mentioned personas nor archetypes or anything like that. And that's because what we're doing throughout the process is we're segmenting based off of needs and not superficial characteristics like mm-hmm. a- age yeah. or... Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, which I, I know you've talked about that in the past, but really what we're doing is we're, we're acknowledging that the 14 year old, you know, person it's who lives a need in that California. Def- yeah. yeah. It's a need that defines the, the, the customer. Yeah. 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 But so it's really important though, because, you know, just because you're 14 and you don't have a car or sure. a job doesn't mean you don't have the same needs as, as a 68 year old who has a Tesla uh, and who retired at, you know, age 50. You might have the same needs, but if you're going and and we're not ignoring those two different customer segments um, through the use of jobs to be done. And what we can do is the the real important part of this entire process is um, we're no longer relying on our own subjective preferences to make decisions and um, and judgments about the outcome of the research. Where you we're spitting it back to the customer, and the customer is telling us what they want. Is is that the thing I was looking for? How does this tie back into facilitating desired outcomes? And uh, is that for you like uh, uh, being able to quantify or predictably go through this process? Because we have a lot of qualitative uh, research methods, and um, the design mm-hmm. process is sort of almost standardized, we know the stages. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking what Jobs to be Done has added for you in this um, in, in this framework, which makes it so valuable for you. Is, the, is it the, the rigor? It, yes, it's it's primarily the rigor. And, and, and know, where, where, where to, specifically is the rigor? How would you describe that? Well, I can, do, I, can, I can answer that question by providing a little bit of contrast. So prior to my experience, 
um, understanding jobs to be done and outcome-driven innovation as a methodology. Prior to that, a lot of the research that we were conducting, we were doing everything right. You know, we were going out into the field and we were listening to people when we were affinitizing the different insight, um, the, you know, the data mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. making these observations and, and coming up with insights. But that's, you know, that was the, the last time that we spoke to customers before the prototyping stage. And so as designers, we all have our own subjective biases. And so we would look at this one insight and we'd say, you know, is it novel? Uh, does it fulfill all these criteria? And it wasn't really rigorous. It was more or less based off of the judgment of the design subjective. team. It was subjective. Extremely subjective. Um, and now uh, post jobs to be done, what we're doing is we're actually identifying the different needs instead of these sort of uh, bucketized insights and then handing it back to the customers and saying, okay, look, this is what we heard. We have no point of view on what's important and, sure. and, yeah. and what's least satisfied or most satisfied. You tell us. And when that comes back to us, we have something that we can share with the business and we can say, look, there is like a lot of rigor around the scores that we are showing to you right mm-hmm. here. We see an opportunity in this part of the market based off of, because we can even do market analysis. We can say, you know, 20% of our customers are looking for these needs to be met. And so we can even start to do things like, you know, very early on in the design process, start to size up the market in terms of dollars and cents, Mm -hmm. which is so important. Like I said, rigor is what we need. We need to be able to inherit, you know, everything from our uh, business brother brethren in the last 60 to 70 years, learn how to communicate in terms of dollars and cents, and then be able to... Yeah, facilitate these desired outcomes by being able to speak the same language as the business folks. I, I feel that some people who are watching and listening right now might say, well, there's nothing new here. I've been doing this. And I think this is okay. Uh, but what I'm hearing you say is that like Jobs to be Done provides at least a fr- framework which increases the likelihood that you're actually going to do this. Of course, there are other ways you might follow the same process, go back to the customers, uh, quantify stuff. It's not that jobs to be done is the only way to do it, but what I'm hearing from you, it's, it is a pretty good foundation and starting point that helps, that guides you through this process in a predictable way. It's the, it's the, it's the methodology, and it's a very specific one. It's called outcome-driven innovation. Sure. Yeah. It's the methodology that, uh, that I found to be the most effective in communicating to business folks who are oftentimes the decision makers, the ones who either give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down to continue. Um, but, you know, just there's, there's an observation that most, the majority of innovation projects fail. I'm, I'm working now for the last six or seven years uh, building innovation capability, building centers of excellence for innovation. And <clears throat> there's no tolerance for failure in innovation, even though there's this idea within service design that we need to be continually experimenting and, um, and thinking about uh, failure as an input into the system rather than as an, uh, an endpoint. We need to be thinking about um, how can we reduce the number of of minimize the likelihood of failed innovation projects, right? I think outcome-driven innovation is really the best way that I've discovered so far. I'm, you know, always open-minded to, to finding new uh, methodologies, but that's the one that I've found mm. that has been the most mm. successful and that has yielded the best business results in my career so far. 
hope this sparks uh, some interest from people, uh, for people, and it will help them to to become uh, more impactful uh, because that's eventually what we want. How would you, after chatting now for 30 minutes, how would you sort of summarize this? What is the uh, morale of this story? I think the morale of the story is <clears throat> we as service designers need to recognize that we are, okay, it, if you, it depends on what context you're in. So if you're within a consulting context, uh, I think there's one moral of the story. If you're within an in-house context, there's a different Given moral both. of the story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, if you're within a consulting uh, environment or context, I think it's important to view your client as uh, your customer um, and have the same recognition and um, <clears throat> uh, deference for your client as you do for the customer. Because I, I know, you know, service designers basically they fall at you know at the feet of the customer and worship everything that they say. Right? We need to be doing the same. We as consultants, we need to be doing the same thing with our clients um, and see them as collaborators in the entire process. Um, this might sound like nothing new, but, you know, every now and then we need to relearn uh, these old lessons. We need to be reacquainted with them. We need to be thinking about the client as our customer. And from an in-house perspective, we need to be thinking about our, you know, the various departments. So, like I said, I work at MetLife and uh, this might be a little bit of a controversial topic, but I love silos. I think silos... You know, there are several books in the past that have always said, like, you know, silos are like organized like this, and we need to we need to knock them down and make this the the organization operate like this, so we can communicate across the different silos. We need to break down the silos. I don't think that's an efficient way of running a global business. Um, silos are really really necessary, uh, but the communication between silos is also extremely necessary, and that's neglect often neglected. So it's important to make sure that there's communication between the different silos. And that's where I think service designers need to function. We are the internal consultants, and maybe you can imagine silos as surrounding the service design capability of an in-house um, uh, you know, innovation capability or center of excellence. And it's the service designer mm. who is operating as the orchestrator exactly. or the conductor. Exactly, that's the word, yeah. Yes, that's as, the word. as the conductor. Uh, who is helping to facilitate, okay, I hear that there's there are needs over here and I hear that there are needs over there. Um, and, you know, how do we bring it all together into one place and innovate against those needs? And, you know, by the way, one of the silos, I think, is also the market segment or the customer group that you're trying to solve for. So the morale of the story, if you had to summarize it in one sentence, <laughs> facilitating I, desired yeah. outcomes. Yep. I think uh, it's about orchestrating uh, desired outcomes. And uh, yeah, sorry for the long-winded response. <laughs> you asked me for a summary and I gave and you a And that's my role. That's my role here. <laughs> um, is there a question that we forgot to talk about? Anything you feel we should have discussed? Um, I think, no, I just want to highlight, I kind of mentioned it once before. As service designers, we really need to work on relationships and relationship building doesn't matter if you're in a consulting uh, organization or in-house as a service designer. We need to be building strong relationships with decision makers. We need to be, and, and humble relationships as well, where we're always approaching the individual with an open mind and never as sort of, um, you know, this pompous, uh, 
uh, wearing medals mm. on our mm. you know chest, mm. showing how much innovation we've done in the past. We need to be approaching and developing relationships from a humble standpoint. And actually, you know, this whole quarantine and lockdown business has been a really wonderful period of time where we can reflect on our relationships because they're so much harder to keep alive, you know, from a distance and, and remotely. So I just want to encourage any individual who's listening to this, whether or not, it, you know, it doesn't even matter if you're coming from a business standpoint or from service design standpoint or somewhere in between. Um, we need to develop stronger relationships because we're all in this together. As a business, we're trying to serve well to always serve, right? I think I heard one of your past guests say that, serve well to always serve. And my goal is to do that, but also my colleague's goal within security uh, who sure. don't interact exactly. with any you know, of our customers exactly. on, a, yeah. on a direct. That's their goal as well. And we need to see ourselves as not in, um, in any sort of you know, battle or um, opposition to one another. We are trying to serve our customers well. That's the only way that we can uh, survive as businesses. I hope that uh, will uh, the conversation in the community will sort of uh, increase around um, methods and techniques on building relationships rather than or next to all the research uh, techniques, mm -hmm. all the mapping techniques, all the prototyping techniques. Uh, we know those, but there are other skills we need to have, we need to build, we need to flex those muscles to uh do what we came to do <laughs> here yeah and and in order to build those relationships you know we need to have something in common with the folks that we're trying to forge that relationship with yeah and sometimes that means getting our feet wet you know i'm lean six sigma green belt certified and understanding the language and being able to um communicate in the ways right. that other like yeah. you know yeah. as, a, as a facilitator you have to you have to always be asking yourself what is my audience trying what What's the message that they're trying to get and how can I convey that message to them? You mentioned uh, a lot of acronyms and different phrases. If you had to recommend one or two things for people to read, sure. listen to, anything that comes to mind? There is a Harvard Business Review article. I think it's called The House of Quality. And it's a quality function deployment tool. Which has sounds been, really sexy. <laughs> uh, I know, right? Yeah, nobody wants to. Nobody's like googling that after I say it. But um, it was developed, I think, in the '70s. Uh, but it's a fantastic tool in order to evaluate the relationships between different requirements that you hear from your customers for the product or the service that you're developing. I've even used it to uh, design my house. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's really it's a really flexible tool. Um, House of Quality, just Google Harvard Business Review, House of Quality. Um, there's quality, and House of Quality is a tool within a broader kind of um, methodology called quality function deployment. And that's all about improving. It's, it's coming from a manufacturing uh, background, you know, coming out of post-war Japan. Um, and improving quality and reducing cost and reduce, increasing efficiency all at the same time. Um, so I would encourage folks to look there. Lean Six Sigma is really great, um, really wonderful. It's a lot closer to design than I ever hmm. thought or hmm. knew. And it took actually getting trained in Lean Six Sigma for me to recognize that. Uh, what else? So NPS, I think, is something that is 
looked down upon within the design community, and rightly so. I don't think it should be the end-all, be-all metric. Um, nevertheless, we cannot approach NPS from that standpoint. Right. We need to be right. humble. We need to say, okay, let's assume that there's something to glean from this. Let's get the like useful NPS. things out of it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Let's get the direct customer feedback. Let's get, you know, how many folks are saying one thing versus another. We can at least start, mm. you know, mm. at that point mm. and use NPS as a, as a, as a jumping mm. off point. I would also say, you know, jobs to be done. I would recommend anything by Tony Ulwick and Strategen. Um, and finally, don't be afraid to use cowboy math. Cowboy math is my latest and greatest favorite thing. It's, it's about making assumptions, good assumptions, educated assumptions about the world, about the business, uh, and seeing, you know, for example, let's say there's 20% of our mm. market who is saying this, that, and the other about these needs. Uh, and that 20% of the market is distributed across the world in mm -hmm. you know, these different markets. And they represent, um, you know, if it's mm -hmm. 20%, you might say that each individual might pay 5 to $10. You know, just use the cowboy math and then extrapolate it so that you can see, okay, this market opportunity is actually a $50 million opportunity if we continue to sure. develop it and mature it over a four-phase period over the next five years. And so all the, at least it at least the cowboy math enables you to, pro, to to start a business case that you can mature and refine and iterate and prototype with your internal stakeholders uh, and develop. And it's not going to, you know, at the end stage, it's not going to look anything like the cowboy math that you started with. It's going to it's going to be really rigorous and you're going to have a strong point of view on what kind of a market opportunity it is that you're approaching from an innovation standpoint. But, you know, you're going to be using yeah, jobs to yeah. be done to support it and quality function deployment and uh, Lean Six Sigma in order to help you defend all of the assumptions that you're making inside of your business case. Like I said, and you also need to be bringing in all the different voices from the different silos that are surrounding you uh, within or without the organization if you're a consultant. Jonathan, I feel like there's so much uh, more that uh, you could share, you'd, you'd like to share but in this episode, we're sort of going to uh, have to wrap it up in case people got excited and want to connect with you to continue this conversation. What's the best way to do that? Um, probably right now, uh, you can find me on Instagram at design.4for.service uh, or just email me. It's design.4for.service at gmail.com. That's a whole nother con. Uh, concept is it's not service design it's designing for service but we'll talk we can talk about that another time all right uh i'll make <laughs> sure all the links to the things you mentioned will be in the show notes in case people want to click and continue in this rabbit hole because i guess that's definitely what it is jonathan uh thanks for hanging out uh with us in this episode uh thanks for being part of this prototype, uh, this experiment. Uh, yeah. It's my pleasure. Thanks for facilitating the conversation. I, I appreciate it. That's, that's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. I really hope you enjoyed this chat with Jonathan and that you learned a few new things that you can actually try in your own practice because that's what we're all about here on this 
show, helping you to design services that win the hearts of people and business. If you haven't done so already, make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and leave a message over there that you're listening to the podcast. I'd love to know from you. If you like what we're doing here on the show and you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with just one other person today. Just one other person. That helps to grow the service design show community and that helps me to invite more inspiring guests like Jonathan here on the show for you. So thanks again for listening to the service design show. It was a pleasure having you. Keep making a positive impact and I'll catch you in two weeks time with a brand new episode. See you then.